welcome to the next episode of Splitting Cases. We're down in Sydney. It's kind of a Splitting Cases field trip, visiting our very special guest. Dave Faulkner from Australian rock legends, the Hoodoo Gurus. And we might hand over to Dave to introduce the topic. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to my residence oh, in, <laughs> in uh, the beachside suburb of Sydney. The topic today is my favourite something or other, and I've chosen film because I like a lot of film. And... Uh, we settled on one that I've got a lot of films. I, you know, it's hard to pick between my favourite, but I chose uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey for Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke. such an amazing director every movie he did was just phenomenally different but amazing in its own right and um you did say before that there might be the sound of birds in the background but it's actually <laughs> it's actually kind of a nice uh, a nice backdrop here you're right we're out out in the suburbs of sydney and it's just opening up on the back of the bush it's beautiful <laughs> lovely house day yeah, people are surprised when they come through and see all this greenery in the back. I, sh- I share, I mean, it's, it's a, I share a little valley between a whole bunch of houses around me and we're all kind of like, you know, back onto it. So, yeah, it's kind of this private little rainforest or something. So, starting with 2001, I rewatched that the other night knowing that um, you'd chosen it for our topic and I hadn't seen it in years and years and years. I think I saw it in my early teens and... It's one of those movies that watching again in your late 20s, you understand so much more. Well, I don't know if anyone really understands it at the end, <laughs> but we'll get to that. But I kind of put it together a lot more and enjoyed it a lot more. Have you seen 2001? Uh, not recently. Like Much like you, I remember I did watch it in my teens because I guess it's always a bit of a discovery, the Kubrick stuff. So, you know, got into Clockwork Orange and The Shining which are probably more teenage-type movies, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember trying to watch uh, A Space Odyssey 2001 <laughs> and just thought, I don't know if I quite get this. And maybe it was because the space-type movies that I was used to watching at that age were more Star Wars, and it's like there's a bit more in that for I, a teenager. I almost had a countdown until when you would mention Star Wars, yeah. <laughs> when that would creep its way in. When was the first time you saw 2001? I was a kid, actually, because I was born in the late 50s, so when it came out, I was about uh, 10 years old or 11, something like that. So as a little kid, you know, not even a teenager, I, is yeah. pretty above my head, but uh, it, mm. it blew my mind, just all the... Just visually. Yeah, just, and, you know, I was interested in science anyway, so all that stuff with the uh, pre, you know, human stuff with the apes yeah. and, the, you know, pre-humans uh, was all really interesting anyway, and then, you know, it went really cosmic after that, <laughs> pretty much straight away. You know, um, yeah. man hadn't even landed on the moon when that movie came out, yeah. so it was still, you know, really a far-fetched idea that people would be certainly going further afield to, you know, Jupiter and then beyond to whatever <laughs> the end of the movie's about. Which I think is what, like, the amazing thing that it was done before they went to the moon. It was done before there, were, there was a lot of space travel at all, yet it looks so authentic. It looks amazing. Well, we actually watched a, a Kubrick doco yesterday on the way down on the train. Cause we're like, cause, cause, <laughs> well, I thought that's something we should disclose. 
and one of the th- comments that was made in that was the shots of the Earth in 2001 was before man was on the moon. There wasn't a lot of images of Earth from space. So that was all imagination mainly. When you first saw it and when you were a kid, did you have a lot of friends who had seen it as well? Did you discuss it, try to figure out what the heck it meant? No. Um, and funny enough, I didn't really get bothered too much about what the final scenes were. I just knew it was pretty extraordinary. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I took it more... I mean, as an adult, I probably would have been far more puzzled by it and, yeah. you know, needing to find out the answers. But as a kid, you kind of just accept it as being, well, something really crazy happened and was, <laughs> you know, that was enough, you know, and, and it ended up with this star child. And, and yeah. you sort of had a, a subconscious sort of understanding of what was going on without necessarily, you know, being able to intellectualise it. I mean, the basic uh, story of the film is about evolution. So that's, you know, from pre-human evolution to, you know, humans evolving to the next, uh, you know, level, which is, of course, the star child and, you know, beyond. And I think that um, you're right, that as a kid I don't remember that end sequence bothering me too much, (laughs) but on Friday night I was just going... What? What does it all mean? But funnily enough, the one thing that it has put into my head since is the idea of the monolith, the big, uh, the big black slab that kind of advances consciousness. And uh, we're staying in a hotel in the city last night, and the wall panel that the TV attached to was a large black floor to floor to roof slab. And I went, oh crap! It's just following me now. Unfortunately, the TV is not really the big educational tool that the monolith was, but I know what you mean. No, almost in hindsight, it's a giant iPhone commercial. (laughs) Well, I guess that's the thing about Kubrick movies is they're not necessarily explained the whole way through. It doesn't really hold your hand and give you, okay, well, this is the narrative and this is where it starts and ends. A lot of it's left up to, I guess, your own devices. It's surreal in some cases. You're not sure whether something's actually happening or not. Like, I guess, particularly in The the Shining, it's like, okay, is that real or is is it in his head yeah well um kubrick started as a photographer first Mm -hmm. and you know the power of the image was kind of what he most got off on yeah it's kind of a little bit like hitchcock you know they call it you know hitchcock in this term i think pure cinema Mm -hmm. and you know he he got got it from the russians and and you know and the these silent films and 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 what they called um what was it called montage which of course just means editing yeah. but um you know just the way of juxtaposing images together and getting having them have their own sort of internal logic or whatever you know it it doesn't require dialogue or you know sub subtitles but um yeah. also the thing about uh, 2001 that's quite extraordinary is that there's virtually zero emotion expressed in the film yeah. um the only emotional uh, outburst is really from hell, the the uh, cyber yeah. being, you know, the the, the uh, artificial intelligence um, on the you know the computer. So all the other humans, all they do is talk in really, um, at, you know, matter of fact, uh, sort of you know, sort of almost military speak, where they're just talking about you know specific things that they are talking. You know, I'm going to here, I'm going to there, and you know, have you heard about this? Mm. The very first words in the film, I think, come in uh, something like 45 minutes into the film. Yeah, it's at least. <laughs> you know, Oh, it's something like you are here, sir, or you've arrived, sir, which is kind of like a bit of a you know nice sort of pun on the idea yeah. of evolution and you know after all this prehistory of you know humans you know evolving from apes, you know according to the you know, little parable told in, in this film. Obviously, the, the the real the meaning of the the sentinel is is uh, you know something I don't 
obviously believes the true explanation of how evolution occurred, but it's a nice little cinematic image and, you know, and it certainly was one that some people, you know, intelligent design, all these sort of idiots would, uh, you know, go, (laughs) you know, if they could just put God there instead, they'd be quite happy. But, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's, just an a incredible, you know, series of images. And the same, you know, when it goes out into space, it's virtually all silent, which is, you know, something you wouldn't have seen in Star Wars. You know, no. there's very little, um, you know, pretend gravity in the film. Yeah. Um, you know, they there are some scenes where they kind of don't belabor the fact that it's, uh, you know, zero gravity, but mostly they're very, very accurate in the way they portray it. And um, that's another thing that's pretty unusual about the film because, you know, virtually no other films do that apart from, say, yeah. Apollo 13 or whatever, yeah. you know, real sort of semi-science-based films. And that's another thing that is still so amazing that it can be so accurate so early on in the piece before space travel had really happened, before man went to the moon. Like, I just... I love visually the effects in the film, especially when she first takes the tray and walks sort of up the wall. (laughs) And I was looking at it going, oh, God, I'm sure that the thing is rotating and she's just walking on it like a a mouse wheel, but holy crap, that looks great. And the same kind of effect when they're in the ship and he kind of climbs down the ladder and walks up to the guy who's um, upstairs. I mean, that. That's actually one of the more impressive ones, I think, because I've seen that so many times and I still can't, you know, fault it. You know, yeah. I, know I, I know in my mind, as you say, what, what was really happening because yeah. they did build a giant centrifuge, whatever, um, you know, um, and, you know, put the set inside it. Mm. But um, it is pretty, pretty well done. <laughs> Amazingly well done. And I think, though, it's, it's like it shows his talent as a director for the fact that for 40 minutes you've got no dialogue and it is just as, just as captivating and just as interesting. And You really do need to wonder whether a, a film like that could be made today because I just wonder if it would even get the financial backing it needs because right. it's like, okay, well, what can we sell out of this movie? Yeah. What's, what's dialogue? What's, it, I just can't imagine that actually happening now. Yeah, exactly. Well, um, at the time, even, they were kind of lucky to get it made. I mean, it was a, a period... I mean, he'd come off some huge hits mm. in the case of... Uh, well, Paths of Glory was his first sort of success and, and Ben-Hur before that he kind of had a big part of. But... Um, what was I'm saying? Doctor Strange Love was enormous, yeah. and of course um, Lolita. Lolita yeah. yeah, so um, you know they were they were successful films, and he was pretty much able to write his own ticket. Getting on the back of Spartacus sort of allowed him to work on a bigger film with a bigger budget, and that kind of wrote a ticket for him. Just because. Well, yeah. Well, he he, well, he made Doctor Strange Love. Uh, yeah. I think next. Another movie I really didn't get in my early teens. Oh god, it's one of my favourite films actually. I mean, I you know. Oh, it's I, great now. Uh, it's one of the films that my band we've watched many times over um mm. always um enjoy it that and blazing saddles you know this ne- <laughs> just ne- never grows old but yeah 2001 he and arthur c clark basically cooked it up between them and and uh yeah at the time they said you know the mgm don't know this but we're making the world's most expensive religious film <laughs> still on the subject of visual effects the Stargate sequence. What I, did you think of that when you first saw it? I had no idea, and it particularly was hard for me because um, besides being a little kid, I, or you're not quite a little kid, but a kid, yeah. I, I, um, I also had some strange cramp in my neck. So I saw the whole film, and it, <laughs> for some reason it was like a, a chill in the muscle or something. And, you know, yeah. I was, maybe I was being a bit of a, a, bit of a wuss, but um, oh, no. it, it was, uh, it, I saw the movie at around about a 60-degree angle. <laughs> so even, it was even more perplexing to me at the end. But... Um, you know, I just, I just soaked it in. You know, I just, yeah. obviously, you know, we'd never seen anything like that at all. Of course, yeah. now with CGI and so forth, nearly everything has been seen, or you know, you, you don't get surprised by it. But that was genuinely surprising. It's and sort of like a, 
an equality in that you wouldn't get from CGI, you know? There's a quality in the fact that knowing that that was knowing that that was done with photography and yeah. different techniques as opposed to there's just it's almost though CGI can make something look more believable, you feel less attached to it because you know it's not it's not been really shot or really done. Exactly. Well, it's just like, for me, um, watching animation, you know, the old-style um, hand-drawn cell animation yeah. is much more believable than seeing CGI, like, like for example, Spider-Man, yeah. because the bodies just go around in space like polygons, and they don't distort, whereas um, the animators used to do this thing where they they gave them distortion when, they, when they'd hit an object yeah. or they'd stop. So they didn't just obey, you know, literally, you know, keep the same shape, which, you know, humans don't. It's just that we don't realise that because it's yeah. sort of faster than we can, you know. You see, I guess, um, you know, those really super fast photography of people in motion, you see their cheeks and so forth being blown around by the wind or whatever, and yeah. it looks bizarre seeing them, you know, snap that shot. But, you know, for, for most of us, we ne- never actually see that, you know, no. that, that level of detail. So... The animators don't capture that either. They just go, well, I'll just put Spider-Man over here, and he's he's just land, you know, flew in on a on a, on a silk cord, and he's yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, and he, and he didn't smash his body up, because, even though yeah. you know, you know, it's just bizarre, you know. So to me, anyway, back to 2001, it was this thing called a slit screen camera they used, which I, I've read about it and I've tried to understand, and I sort of do, but it still is kind of mind blowing to me exactly how they achieved those effects. I mean, it's, for example, those. Um, the, there's polygons that are above the uh, horizon at one scene. They were actually little plastic cubes that they projected uh, individual films onto and frame by frame and then That's did awesome. the whole exposure frame by frame, yeah. which is, again, and so that was <laughs> also pretty crazy uh, yeah. stuff. So it was, it was animation in its own way, but not, um, as you say, CGI. I think the general idea around the, the light scene at right was sort of almost like, to put it very simply, like a long exposure with like headlights from a car or different lights in the city, how you get those streaking kind of patterns? Um, nothing like it. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, yeah, in the sense that it, yeah, it's exposing the film in a different way. Yeah. But it's this other thing where they get, get a, a, a slit and they move it across images and there's actually like uh, all sorts of shapes and things. And, and again, the, the overexposure, the way it sort of, you know, yeah. flared and... And then there was other things, of course, there's, there's, there's oils and paints and so forth, you know, thrown into cloud tanks, yeah. which, which again made these other crazy effects. Yeah. But, um, you know, overall, I mean, you know, what's that all about, as you say? You know, what's it mean? Well, it doesn't really mean anything. It's just no. a cinematic expression of the notion that there is some incredible transformation occurring and mm. uh, this is a journey. And yeah. just as the, uh, everything else in the film has been a journey, that's another sort of journey, but it's a metaphysical one in... in, in in terms of, you know, what we would know as reality, and that's what the film is trying to show. Yeah, absolutely. And I always kind of see when I picture it back, probably quite heavily in part to all the parodies and homages I've seen in The Simpsons, yeah. funnily enough, because The Simpsons yeah. seem to be huge <laughs> Kubrick fans. I don't know, I feel like I've seen so much of the Hal sequence in popular culture that it was good to put it together with the rest of the movie because it's, it's in four segments, right? There's the... Dawn of Man, there's the one where they go to the moon and there's the Hal sequence and yeah. then there's the ending through the Stargate and on yeah, the so other the, dimension. The Hal is just a subplot to illustrate the notion of intelligence and, yeah. and evolution of, 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 of uh, yeah, the brain that, even to another way. But, yeah. So it's like a side 
uh, story to the overall story evolution. But Do you give something artificial intelligence and is it really feeling something or is that what we just programmed it to feel? And exactly, well, as we see, Hal's one that probably has the most emotion in the whole film. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, when, oh, man, when he's shutting Hal down <laughs> and he's like, oh, he taught me this song, would you like to hear it? And he's singing and it starts to slow. Oh, yeah, pretty cool. Pretty, heart, pretty, pretty cool. But um, I actually lost my train of thought now, which got stuck on Hal. But, um... but I mean, yeah, you're right with emotion because Hal sort of gets offended and very protective of the mission that they were going to shut him down. It's almost like he's feeling betrayed, yet... That's why he does the, the, uh, gets a homicidal, because he, he feels that they are jeopardising the mission and his number one priority is to actually <laughs> support the mission above yeah. the humans. So that's, you know, he's still a machine in that sense, but yeah. it's from an emotional sort of almost jealousy thing, isn't it? It is, right. <laughs> it's, it's, but it's, it's great voice acting as well, because it's not, you don't, it's not very obvious. It's very subtle voice acting that you can start to hear that, trail come into his voice a little bit just the slightest and when, when i saw the film and as you know the first uh, viewings because it's such a long film it actually had an intermission in it yeah and the intermission was literally at the point i, I think it probably might may see it on on blu-ray it does mm. show the intermission but yeah that's after the scene where hell's lip reading and you start to go that gives you a real chill even yeah. though you don't know what's going to happen it's yeah. it's quite an extraordinary moment you're like right he knows <laughs> and the way the way it kind of uh, just circular kind of shoots in on their lips. It's like it just—it just feels ominous. It feels like something is something's going to happen. This, the <laughs> fact that there's an intermission in a movie like that is probably really great because you you stop, you get out, and you get to reflect on what's just happened. And it's like, okay, let that sink in, and then back into it. You don't really get that now. No, no and, and and there were some pretty hard to explain things already happened. You know, as we know, yeah. the very opening scene was the dawn of man, but um, the whole thing with the monolith when it's first exposed i mean mm. it's hard to figure out what really happened there yeah. and i mean i know what happened now but yeah. um because it's based on an arthur c Clarke short story called the sentinel okay and basically this intelligent super you know alien race whatever planted an alarm on the moon okay. knowing that when humans had evolved they knew that humans were evolving and when they were evolved enough technically that they could get to the moon and uncover it that would be a time when they should start to be scared of them and they should. Uh, so that's <laughs> that. Just you've just blown that one open for me. That's fantastic. Um, because it does. It does at the end of that moon sequence, when they walk up to it, almost like the apes at the start. They're kind of drawn to it, and then there's yes. that high pitched noise, and they just kind of cover their where their ears are on their space helmets and cuts yeah, that, out. That's a radio emission that it, that of course starts the mechanics of the process. Uh, around Jupiter, yeah, the other monolith that's to Jupiter, we better go there. Yeah, that's right, because they trace the signal. And they say it's going to Jupiter, so they go there to see where the hell that what that's all about. Yeah. But um, the if you look at it again, you'll see that the reason that the monolith suddenly arcs up and makes that noise, you know, sends off that emission, is that it's hit by the sunlight. Mm. See, it was put under, it was buried, and they yeah. exposed it. And and of course, before that, you're hearing all the Russians asking about that. You know, this magnetic anomaly I hear about, yeah. that which they, oh, actually, the US are talking about the anomaly, and they they uh, cover it up by saying it's uh, some sort of flu outbreak in the base. No one can go there. Yeah, but, and but, then he arrives, and he's like, okay, is everybody happy with the cover story? You know, because yeah. we just can't tell anyone about this. Oh man, I, it's kind of one of those things that now I'm realizing it's on repeated viewings. It just reveals so much more. Yeah, so it's, 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 so it's a simple idea, and uh, instead um, Kubrick changed it from just being, you know, a, a burger alarm, so to speak, you know, <laughs> um, to being a, an agent that would cause the next phase of our evolution, which was yeah. being 
mentored, I suppose, or, or facilitated by this other, you know, unknown intelligence. I, I can't wait to watch it again. <laughs> I feel like I need to go home and watch it right now. <laughs> oh, absolutely. But, I mean, quickly back on to the Simpsons. We were talking about Citizen Kane the other day, and I was like, the first time you watch that, if you haven't watched it before, you'll understand so many Simpsons references. <laughs> you know, there's certain movies that are touchstones that are used, and... I think uh, the, the episode where Homer goes to space and um, at the end of it, I think Bart throws up like a felt pen or, <laughs> or the rod that they had or something like that and it flips in the air and you're kind of watching it going, right, okay, I get this. The Simpsons are obviously well known for yeah. referencing lots of pop culture stuff, like they whether actually, it's Kubrick or... They actually did. Um, they had a Treehouse of Horror episode that aired last Sunday that had a third section which was entirely a parody homage to Kubrick in general. Oh, so really? it had little tiny bits of Space Odyssey, bits of Clockwork Orange and that kind of thing. Fantastic. And one of them sort of kicks the guy in the shin, the leg breaks off, and he just goes, I don't even get what that's a reference to. <laughs> and so I had to look that up. I don't think that is a reference to Kubrick, not that I know of. I, I haven't. The only one I haven't seen is actually uh, Eyes Wide Shut. So... No, you know, I, I have it on Blu-ray here in the house, but I started to watch it and I just couldn't get through it because it's actually boring and, yeah. and you know, so pretentious. I mean, I'm sorry, it's, it's misfire yeah, in, my, in my opinion. I have actually seen it, but I, had, I did know that it took a, like a long time to put together, apparently. Like, he was uh, taking much longer on it than it was supposed to, but they liked it when it was shown. I don't know. Don't know if anyone liked it when it was shown. I mean, some <laughs> yeah. people did, but, um, yeah, Tom and Nicole, I mean, you know, that was a fake couple that oh, were in a yeah. fake situation and it didn't really hold up you know as a film and 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 i think kubrick's for once his dispassionate almost clinical and some and very cold approach really didn't help the material because it was very cold and and you know i mean maybe to reward you know viewings in years to come i might sort of get around to it and figure it out but uh, um at this point i just can't i mean for me barry Lyndon gets as is the same film with film with a lot more emotion and a lot more colour and, and, and context. Um, this just seems to be a big fake. Yeah. Well, um, I've seen clips of Barry Lyndon before. I think uh, we were doing, in high school, we were doing auteur studies in a journalism media class and were showing different Kubrick clips. And I think I'd seen bits of Barry Lyndon but never actually seen the whole movie. Other favourite Kubrick films? Uh, well, you know, The Killing is pretty good. And uh, I love Lolita, even though it's it's... A bit of a mess, but it's still fantastic. Barry Lyndon is a, a great film because he was, uh, you know, went from a sci-fi, you know, space movie to a sci-fi future sort of dystopic sort of film and then went completely the other way around, you know, going yeah. back to, to Barry Lyndon. But the film he wanted to make, which is the one that I always wish uh, he had have made, mm-hmm. is uh, he wanted to do A Life of Napoleon. And cool. uh, he had been developing it for years. He was, he was, as you mentioned before about, um, you know, the time he took to make uh, Eyes Wide Shut. Well, he, mm. nearly every film he made took a lot longer each yeah. time. <laughs> and he, he became a, a rather a perfectionist and, you know, to the point of actually absurdity uh, mm. in many cases. I mean, he drove... Where it was poor, hard to get things done. Yeah, and Shelley Duvall, he, he virtually, you know, drove her to a breakdown on, on, on The Shining, having a screaming, you know, blood-curdling fear for, you know, a year. Yeah, you she know, wasn't it, acting when she was scared. No, <laughs> no. And, you know, how many times do you have to, to open a door handle, you know, to get yeah. it exactly right? But he was just absolutely obsessed. And, um, yeah. you know, that, that sort of shows, I think, in, in that sort of dispassionate thing because he sort of in some ways takes away all the spontaneity and all the 
the naturalness out of the actions, and yeah. it, it does add a certain level of strangeness to his work. Yeah. But, but um, Shelley Duvall, who was very natural in her fear, <laughs> she was. Um, but I think the famous quote from that movie was Jack Nicholson saying, saying that you know, just because you're a perfectionist doesn't mean you're perfect. Mm. But um, to his, his Napoleon one, he actually was built, developing it for many years and he bought all his uh, first editions of, uh, you know, biographies of Napoleon and, and war histories and so forth. And he became one of the top experts of Napoleon in the world. He had the most incredible library. So you're right, definitely right with perfectionists. Oh, yeah. a movie about Napoleon, I'd better be the expert. Oh, yeah. Well, he just, he just well, he was obsessed. And, and uh, there, there was an exhibition that came to Melbourne at the Acme. Yeah. And uh, the Australian cinema, uh, something of me- moving image, yeah, yeah moving yeah. image, and it was uh, it had all these different props from his movies, including the, the Star Child from two thousand and one, oh, and awesome. and and you know costumes from Barry Lyndon, and it had this uh, like an old library card index, you know that used to be yeah. before that computer yeah, yeah. Car- uh, indexes and libraries, and he had Napoleon's life organised by every month from you know the day he was born to the day he died. And each wow. and in each one was you know broken up into the days of the month, and every day there was a card for every character that appeared in Napoleon's story, whether it was yet to meet him or hadn't been born or whatever. So it just explained on that card it would give a basic a pricey of what they were doing that day. So sort of <laughs> events and times in his life we want to film and cover. Right, who's here? What's he been doing? What's leading up to? Yeah, he'd cross-reference every instant of his oh, life and every character in his life day by day. Throughout for the whole of Napoleon's life, so he could always look it up and go, well, "Who was General So and So that he met twenty years later, doing when he yeah. was at school?" So all that you know, that's <laughs> that just I don't know. I can't imagine being that interested in anything to be that <laughs> obsessed. Like, uh, like I would call myself an obsessive fan on certain things, but that's to a whole yeah. another level. To the point where you've got to wonder if your partner's looking at you, going, <laughs> "Have you gone crazy? Have you completely lost the plot?" Well, he was he was married pretty much from uh, what one of one of the women in one of the movies he married, and she was um, around for pretty much the last forty five fifty years yeah. of his life, I think. So she would have had to be quite a patient woman. Yeah, well, I, I imagine it must be that mix of you know awe, but also <laughs> oh, should I really say anything? <laughs> well, I mean. Obviously, none of us can answer for what his real life was like, his family yeah. life, but they all speak highly of him and say yeah. he was a lovely man and quite normal, you know, around the home, you know, that his daughters and, and his... His daughter's actually in 2001 in that scene. Yeah. That's that her in the, in, in the uh, answering the, the, uh, the, the video phone yeah. in, to the, the, the father. And uh, that's, that's Kubrick's obviously popping her these questions and then she responds very naturally because yeah. it's just improvised and then that he just wrote the script around her, her answers. That's awesome. And one, one thing with that as well that I was noticing from the perspective of living in 2014, that a view of the future and future technology from 1968, well, 67, 66, when they're developing it, is sort of accurate in some ways, and especially the video phone type thing, but one thing they didn't have in terms of, they didn't look into the idea of a touchscreen, everything is still buttons, everything is still very rooted in that physical kind of aspect. Well, naturally, because, you know, yeah. that, that was pretty, um, you know, much something that no one would ever think, well, who, yeah. needs, who needs that? You know, <laughs> a button will do just as well. And, yeah. <laughs> but also, if you look in the, in the, in the spaceship, though, they simulate uh, flat screens. Yeah. On the, uh, like, they're looking at, like, something like an iPad on the, on the, the two astronauts in the, uh, 
the giant mission to Jupiter. Yeah. They're actually they're, you know they've sunk the uh, scr- these uh, rear projection screens yeah. into the into the things, but they actually yeah. look like little pads. Yeah. So they, they did simulate something that was close to that without and, the touchscreen aspect, you're right. And that is being, though, super picky because for an amazing-looking <laughs> film, I'm just, like, really nitpicking that. I, I do find it interesting, though, that there's some technology, when you don't have it, you think is going to change your life and be amazing, like video calls. Mm. It's like, oh, wow, you can actually see who you're talking to. We all have it in our pocket, and I never use it, yeah. and I don't know anyone who right. really does. Like, if you're travelling, yes, but it's not like you, you know use your video phone to call your partner, I'm running late from work. (laughs) I remember the first time I saw somebody using an iPad to FaceTime someone and it was on one of those travelators at Sydney Airport. I think I was going, I was working in Darwin so I was kind of flying back late night and it must have been about 7 o'clock and there was a dad Skyping his daughter. His daughter was in bed and he was saying goodnight to her as he was walking along the travelator and I was like... Oh, my God. The future is now. The future is now. <laughs> What's happening? That's very 2001. That's what he was doing on the, on the space station there. Yeah. Uh, and, and, of course, the, um, the design of the, uh, the ship that he arrived on, the, you know, the, the Pan Am, which yeah. <laughs> they didn't exist <laughs> in 2001, that's based on the, what was a very, very early prototype for what became the space shuttle mm. because, there's, you know, there's been no spaceship ever designed like that before either. Yeah. You know, we'd only seen, you know, Atlas rockets and so forth. Quickly, I want to duck back to Napoleon because why... Okay, so all that work that he put into it, why did it never come to fruition? Funding, you know, films, it's always that thing of, you know, who's going to want to see a film like this? I mean, you know, could they, um, you know get people interested, the studios were, were a bit leery of it. Then there was a rival Napoleon got made, oh, and that okay. basically sh- completely, he just lost interest after that. So like, well, someone else has done Yeah, it. but the funny thing is he had this, they had the graph paper that he'd drawn up of the film story, and again, similar to the, the card index I described, it, just, it has the whole thing basically summarised. He has all the characters and uh, cross-referenced in coloured uh, in, in the top of the graph. And the side of the graph is the movie's story in 10-second chunks. And, he, and it was this huge sheet, and he had all the little dots where the, which characters were in the scene and, you know, and description of what was happening yeah. on the side of the scene, like 10 seconds. So he had the whole film, which is like a two-and-a-half-hour film, yeah. mapped out in 10-second blots, ready to go. He just needed to... Just needed ha- to put that in, into action, film it. Oh, my I mean, God. it's the same as Hitchcock. You know, he, he always said you know, that making the film was boring because yeah. he'd already made it in his head. He just storyboarded yeah. it. He was one of the first people who really used storyboards a lot in mm. films. And... He had it all done. He had all the angles, decided it, you know, the, the lenses he knew from his own experience. And Kubrick was the same. He, Kubrick often got behind the camera because he knew lenses intimately. And he often, yeah. that was one of his biggest bugbears was in the, when the cinematographer might object to a lens he chose, you know. And then Hitchcock had the same thing, you know, because they knew exactly what the aspect ratio they wanted on yeah. any shot. And he was, he was very, he wanted complete control over it. So to have a disagreeance like that is... Yeah, and, and uh, you know, like Barry Lyndon, a very low-tech movie in the sense yeah. of, you know, set in the 1700s and, you know, this story back in those, that very quiet time. He used natural light mm. virtually for the whole film, including candlelight. I heard that, and that's why it looks so different yeah. as well. From- well, well, he bought uh, off NASA through his experience through 2001, he bought these incredibly super-fast lenses. Yeah. That were like used for military satellites, Where'd and you get those? No, just bought them off NASA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so he had this most, you know, incredibly, uh, you know, uh, sensitive lenses that would just, you know, shoot yeah. in the most, you know, dim light. You know, there is some artificial lighting in the film, but very little. So, on to the odd conspiracy side of two thousand and one. Oh god. <laughs> 
I love the oh god already. <laughs> I saw this. I saw this film. It must have been on ABC or SBS or something. That was almost like a um, it's a parody. A film. parody of a the moon landing was a hoax thing. Yeah. So it wasn't a conspiracy theory film. It was a parody on conspiracy yeah, but, theory films. But, but of course, it's led to conspiracy theorists saying, "See, I, <laughs> we saw it." There's a, there's evidence. There's a, you know, and that, they use this, all this stuff for this film that was done as a joke, yeah. as being uh, evidence of this, you know, true conspiracy. I mean, it's a, there was a, a, a film made at the time called uh, Cap, or just after a few years later called Capricorn One, yeah. which was uh, about a conspiracy theory before all these conspiracy theories started happening. So, I mean, I do believe in conspiracies. I mean, you know, <laughs> they do exist, but. <laughs> But uh, not this, but this is ridiculous, you know, and, and yes, anyway, that doesn't be worth talking about. <laughs> I, I love it. That's, that is the perfect dismissal of it. That's wonderful. <laughs> so on to other seminal Kubrick films. Um, as a teenager, I think a big one for me was Clockwork Orange. Mm. I think all teenage boys were somehow into that at some point. Yeah, which is a, a little bit odd, I yeah. guess, in this sense. It's What's like a, you're a teenage boy. Should you really be getting that into violence and <laughs> rape? It's, I don't know. It's so, so sort of it pushes boundaries in terms of that kind of thing. And you're like, oh, I shouldn't, I don't know if I'm allowed to see that. I'll watch that kind of thing. It's, it was banned in Europe, uh, in, yeah. in England for most of, well, after, after Kubrick died. Yeah. Because uh, at the time it was causing copycat violence and, oh. and he was getting threats and all sorts of things. So, so that was something where it came home to him. But funnily enough, you know, as we look at it now, it's not that violent really, right. but it still is very violent in terms of its ideas and, and, and the feeling of it is incredibly threatening. Yeah. So, so it's, it's in some ways more scary because it, it does actually go into more the psychology behind things rather than the literal, you know, are we seeing open wounds and beheadings? Yeah, and the, the look into Alex's mind, I mean, the, 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 as opposed to 2001, like half of it's narration and he his narration is incredible. It's just such... It's always calm and it's, it's almost hell-like in that it's just vaguely threatening the whole time. Yeah, well, he was very likeable. That's the thing that's yeah. so, so uh, you know, dangerous about the film because you do strongly identify with these hideous people and yeah. what they do. And, and, you know, even at the end, you're wishing for him to become bad again because, you know, <laughs> the do-gooders have made him a clockwork orange. They've, they've yeah. pro deprogrammed it so he's a re revolted by violence. And then, you know becomes a political football and, yeah. uh, you know, the hero's journey is he gets, you know, he, he can be violent again and he's free <laughs> to, to be as, as psychotic as he always was. Which completely, it, it's, it's one of those first films that you realise that the, the main character isn't necessarily good or bad, they just are as they are and you're sort of rooting for the bad guy or you're rooting for the good guy. He's just your main character. Yeah, well, that was one that I remember getting really into reading the book and sort mm. of just being consumed by it all. And the, I guess the tagline that has stayed with me a lot over the last 10 years is, you know, evil has to exist along with good so that moral choice may operate. And I often, I don't know, just think about that, which I, maybe is <laughs> a little a bit creepy. But, but yeah, like often, like I do think it's like, okay, well, you know, this is happening. Okay, well, I don't know. There has to be a counterpoint. I, yeah. Oh, well, look, you're certainly a much more calmer influence in my life. I'm more, between the two of us, the one that uh, has very high highs and very low lows, kind of always sitting in the middle going, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's an apt description. In a, in a good way, though. What, so you're Alex and he's Dim, is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all, not at all. Did you ever read the book? I did, I did read the book. Did you find it a slog or did you enjoy it? Um, no, I enjoyed it, but it, it was, you know, it was 
obviously that strange language you had to sort of get your head around. I, I, I was a, a very avid reader, so I had no, you know, I, once I got started something, it was very easy to carry on. But, yeah, yeah straight away you're into this, this weird, uh, you know, Russian sort of derived garbled speak. But, no, it's, you know, because it's still, you know, you can sort of figure out some of the stuff pretty quickly and it was, you know, obviously fairly racy, some of the content, so yeah. it's pretty uh, enjoyable to read for a, for a lad. And I think it does put you in that world, though, the way it's written. Like, yeah. it, it really makes you really submersed in it then because, I don't know, it's its own language. It's like you're, you're part of it. Yeah, I, I don't know why. I think I might need to go back and try again. But when I read it, I just, I don't know, I don't think I enjoyed it because I got bogged down in that, just getting through the language and the way it was written, which was so different to anything I'd really, I'd really encountered before. Actually, weirdly enough, I liken it to travelling through... Europe and my partner picked up a um, copy of uh, Winnie the Pooh written in Scots. So it was sort of like, it was sort of almost phonetically yeah. like the like you would imagine a Scottish accent. And I can't read it unless I've been drinking. Like I have to, I have to take it. We, we went, no, I know, I know that sounds bad, but it's like I took it to the pub later that night and read it out loud to uh, the partner's brother and he's like okay we can do this all right and we're reading winnie the pooh and scots to each other at a pub well i do think scots is one of the more difficult languages to understand i cannot imagine how it would be for a foreigner to yeah. you know who speak, learned english to it's... try and figure that out because for me it takes a couple of days around you know really yeah. uh you know thick accent scottish person to understand everything they're saying is they speak fast like us you know but back to Clockwork Orange. Yeah, yeah. I would happily go to you know the Kuruva Bar and have a locker synth mess tonight. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny that um, we went to see Shehard last night because their pacifier film clip is based on that from the Clockwork Orange movie. It's thinking about that film clip when I was watching them play last night, going, "Okay, good, good fit." It was all tied in for <laughs> this weekend. Yeah. <laughs> it was all tied in nicely. Did you remember seeing that film when it came out, and was that particularly full on for you? Was that particularly shocking? I think it was, I was too young and uh, was so it was restricted uh, viewing for me. It I had been seventy one. Yeah, so I, I had to wait a few years. I was I saw it at university um, okay. few, in the mid seventies. So that was uh, you know when I was able to see it, and uh, it was yeah pretty exciting still. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, as I said, the British had to you know rely on videos that they got from other countries and, you know, and they pass it around hand to hand, a bit like, you know, something behind the Iron Curtain. Well, that's, I mean, that's like why. Beatles albums behind the Iron Curtain or something, or yeah. jeans. But um, uh, I don't know, it, it, it was, for me, just uh, as you were responding to it too, you know, it was just a really exciting ride. And, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and as I say, the shocking content was pretty titillating and... and and, you know, at the same time, I also did understand the moral implications and I was enjoying that side of it, you know, yeah. having to think hard about the content rather than just, you know, going to see a movie about a serial killer and, you know, being scared and then, you know, going, I'm glad that's over. You know, it was yeah. not like that at all. It's actually made you take it home with you and have to digest it. Well, it makes it a lot more shocking, like, rather than just seeing someone being slashed up. It's like, OK, well, that's not real. I'm not leaving this movie with anything to take home. Right. Yeah, and look, the, the, just apart from all of that, the cinematography, as usual with Kubrick, was amazing. The sets and the costumes were just beautifully done, and the use of music in it as well, like 2001, except like hearing it, hearing it sped up in the in the scene in his bedroom, and hearing it in a very dramatic context was. Uh, now that brings us back to 2001, because when you said music, that's a very famous story that was um, quite shocking as well. Yeah.
the screen composer, I think it was Alex North, was in, uh, hired to do the score for it. For 2001 or for the, Clockwork? For 2001. 2001. And, uh, you know, there's a very celebrated score in that movie, yeah. but it was all what they call, not source music, there's another term for it anyway, but basically it was recordings that already existed. It wasn't actually recorded for the, score, the yeah. film. And they, they'd used them during the editing process, which is a normal thing to do when you're making a film. Um, it's called a scratch soundtrack because it gives the editors and the, obviously the director a rhythm they can cut to because, they get the, you know, otherwise you might get bored with the shot. And but when there's some, it. Yeah, but when there's music, it actually means you can hold the shot longer and not yeah. be so nervous about, you know, we've already seen that because it has a certain resonance with the music and it, and yeah. it, can, it can hold, as they say. So um, this film had a full score d- recorded. Mm. Uh, that wasn't the ones you hear today. Yeah. And unfortunately, Kubrick wasn't wise enough or you know, to have enough, have enough empathy to tell the, the composer that he'd replaced the score with what he'd been using to edit with. So he went to the, he went to the uh, premiere, you know, the gala premiere of the film, and uh, this film starts and it's not his music and it continues on and it's not his music and eventually he realises there's none of my music going to be in this film. He spent... So that's a pretty that's hor- horrible story about Kubrick. And he's, he's probably he's probably bringing his partner or telling his friends oh. that he's in this movie. He's proud of it, you know. It's his work, and oh god, what a way to find out. Yeah, no, I can't add anything <laughs> to that. That's, just... that's worse. That's worse than having a small role that's cut from a film. You know, music yeah. is such an integral part of it, and it's something that you spend so much of your time, especially that kind of music. You have to classical music. I imagine from. An outsider's perspective is something that's so complex to have to work on and score Absolutely. to a film and oh yeah. So um, the score is available now; it's been re-recorded, okay. and uh, people can you know try and put it back together again if they want to. But to be honest, it was the right choice. Um, yeah. you know, the, the music is incredible in the film. It just could have been tactfully you know approached with this uh, composer. Well, exactly. I, don't, I don't know if the that conversation could ever have gone well, but. No. It, but <laughs> But, but, I mean, it's certainly a conversation that is appropriate to have. <laughs> exactly. Oh, absolutely. And the, the other major Kubrick film that was the touchstone for me was The Shining. I can always remember that movie and the particular scenes from it are also iconic. Yeah, well, I mean, I read the novel and I thought, uh, unlike, you know, I mean, Stephen King didn't like the ending, but I thought it was far better than the novel. All that stupid hedgerow jumping around stuff was ludicrous, whereas, you know, the the, um, the maze changing and so forth, and that was a much more scary concept to me than, uh, you know, giant rabbits made out of, you know, topiary. <laughs> just, the, just the whole, just running through the snow and it's just dark and it's it's very... It's a not not a not an easy landscape, you know. It's terrifying. What's your what's, name? Your scariest moment from the film? I think the bartender scenes. Okay. I find that scary because it's kind of like, okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, maybe, maybe, but yeah. There's probably part of that as well. It's like, okay, just slowly going mad, and now you're in this bar talking to yourself, or is this a ghost? I don't it's know. a slightly, it's the slightly realistic part of it. You know, you, you can imagine your mind going, maybe not the elevator full of blood, but. Um, yeah, that's right. And but I, I think that's the thing with that movie. It's just what's real and and what's not. Well, well and I you think, don't really need to know the answer. Like that part's not important. Yeah. No. Well, my favorite, the scariest moment for me is that sound of that kid on the trike going <laughs> down the over the the carpet, then down the pla- yeah. the boards and over the carpet. It goes for about you know a good few minutes, and yeah. it's just, it just seems to be endless and extremely frightening. Even though nothing really, you don't know why you're scared, but it's really 
terrifying. It's because your brain almost goes, okay, we're tracking him for a reason, you know? Like, we're, and you, like it's excellent sound design in that it is that floorboard, floorboard, carpet dull, floorboard, floorboard, yeah. carpet dull. And then when he finally stops in the hall. And sees the twins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty frightening, even though it's just two little girls. But, yeah. you know. It's context, you know? Okay. It's, it's uh, oh, man. Yeah. Agree. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also the the slightly Hitchcockian parallels, the way he treats um, Shelley Duvall is almost like the way... Uh, who was in The Birds that uh, Hitchcock ended up... Tippy Hendrick. throwing the birds at her. I mean, no wonder she's got a terrified reaction. Probably doesn't want to look at birds again. Yeah, Hitchcock was a very um, cruel man in many ways, you know. He called it a wicked sense of humour, but it actually was mostly... It was wicked. It was wicked. <laughs> Malevolent. If anything happened... And he was one of these people that play pranks, and that was, you know, to him a prank, even though it wasn't. Yeah. But um, if, if someone did something to him uh, along those lines, he was angry for a long time, and he wouldn't forgive them. So, you know, he, he was a... You know, that thing of someone playing a joke but not being able to take a joke. That's not, not a good thing for someone's character. You know, that's... I mean, he's a great filmmaker, but it seems like Kubrick, from all accounts, was a much warmer guy outside of... Oh, no, the other way around. Other no, way around. No. Oh, no, Kubrick didn't have much to do with his casts at all, whereas, um, you know, and that's the thing that uh, Malcolm McDowell, he yeah. was incredibly shocked after the finishing um, Clockwork Orange that, you know, their friendship didn't continue because he felt so close. They had really, you know, as the two, the actor and the director had really married their, 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 uh, their uh, you know, talents together and created this special thing. Then afterwards, Kubrick just moved on and he was on to the next project and didn't want to know about Malcolm McDowell, but he thought, you know, they had a real strong friendship and, and an understanding of each other. Whereas Hitchcock was famously, he was a bit like uh, Coppola, you know, liked yeah. to go out and have a nice meal and, you know, oh, uh, awesome. with everyone and drink wine and, you know, in fact, you know, was it a shadow of a doubt, the film he made up in the Napa Valley, you know, because he just wanted the idea of going up to a nice wine region as well. It's one of his best films as well. But, but um, you know, he just liked the idea of, you know, have good food and good wine. And, so and he was very much into that. And he, yeah, so his set, he actually his sets were generally happy, but mostly his crew, he taught the actors were idiots. Okay. Or, you know, or, 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 you know, those nuisances. The, old, the famous saying, all actors are cattle, whether he actually said that, no one knows. But, yeah. but he, he, he was very close to his crew. He had to use the same people over and over, and they had a very familial atmosphere and no see he was actually quite um genial and warm outside apart from these wicked pranks and you know and but you know at the same time some of his his humor was you know was quite funny and people yeah. loved him for that that completely blows my perceptions of the two of them because i always imagined hitchcock is much harder and kubrick is much warmer but no 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 not at all <laughs> no you can tell from kubrick's waistline that he liked you know, good living you know he he'd, he was, yeah, you know, he was deeply ashamed of it, and that's one of the reasons he was so he had such strange complexes. But um, you know, very strange man. But but uh, yeah, as far as you know, in a social situation, he just he, he relished it. One thing that I found interesting as well, in terms of like you were mentioning the work that went into the Napoleon film that never happened, uh, it kind of it mirrors Steven Spielberg was saying about that AI movie that apparently when he went to Kubrick's house the day after he called him up, he just been working on storyboards and artwork and images and just went oh okay well you know you can have this I'll produce it for you but we'll you know it's it's interesting that someone can put so much work into something to have it not go ahead yeah that's that, that's another great loss isn't it <laughs> we got what a pretty crappy movie from that was Spielberg not such a great movie no no bit like Millennial Man or whatever it was, but Robin Williams is yeah. <laughs> about yeah. as good as that. Or, or that show, was it Small Wonder on TV used to be on? Well, it tell, it's telling that I had to just rack my brain to think of Millennial Man. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I know I know what it is. But, no, yeah, it's a shame. But um, Kubrick, 
said that he, he couldn't make the film until the technology caught up, and it was after um, seeing, I think, um, you know, what's it called, Jurassic Park, I think, is when he realised that, yeah. um, that it had advanced, and he thought, uh, you know what, I don't really want to do this anyway. I'll let some, the guy who can do that do this. Lastly, directors that sort of took on that role from him, is there anyone comparable, do you think? Particularly incredible filmmakers of that standard. Oh, there's millions of them, of course, you know. Well, there's Scorsese. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not, a, I'm not as big as Scorsese's fan. I, mean, I do like Scorsese, and I've got yeah. a lot of his films, but, <laughs> but I find him, you know, kind of mixed up a lot of the time, too. A lot yeah, of his films, there's, you know, like, there's a bit... He, he's most of his films are a bit like uh, Full Metal Jacket, where they're half great and half kind of. Mm, yeah. What do you do there? Do that for? <laughs> but uh, I'm a huge fan, obviously, of Hitchcock as well, and and that's more of a recent thing, to be honest. I I, I always liked Hitchcock, but I never really gave him the weight of yeah. um, of Kubrick. But I worship worship him as a master now. John Ford is one of my favourite directors. What did John Ford do? John Ford did, um, you know, The Searchers. She rides. She wore a yellow ribbon. He did a yeah. million films. I mean, he, he he's one of the titans of film really you know i love howard hawks david lean is another f- filmmaker i really worship kurosawa i mean this is it's just the list goes on and on really yeah. those are my favorites to be honest right there um i could probably rack my brain for a few more <laughs> that i rate just as highly That's but um you know they'll, they'll do for the moment Pointy? um I, I don't really watch a lot of film <laughs> to be honest so like we spoke about this in i guess some of the earlier podcasts we've done that TV has kind of replaced film in some ways because you can tell longer stories, you can do more character development. So an hour and a half, it's just kind of, it's over too quickly. Oh, that's certainly true. And, and of course, what's happened to the films is, is what used to be, uh, when I was growing up, we thought of as, as drive-in films, you know. Um, mm. They were just for kids to go out and neck to, you know, and, and that's where all those horror films from the late 50s come from. They were yeah. basically just keep parents away and, and teenagers would go there and there's a way to get away from, you know, because they all lived at home. Yeah. And it's a bit similar now. Everyone lives at home and, uh, you know, they, they go to the cinema to watch these empty-headed, you know, effects movies and uh, yeah. me and my mum and dad stay home and watch, you know, uh, Breaking Bad or something. Yeah. <laughs> Needless to say that, yeah, I agree with those sentiments. <laughs> All three of us, we're going to say pass emotion, yes. <laughs> the eyes have it. All right, cool. Thank you so much for uh, being on Splitting Cases. What are you, yourself and the gurus up to in the coming months? Uh, well, we're doing a variety of shows. We're actually playing in Gosford uh, very soon um, for at the what's now called the Gosford Entertainment Centre, which was, I think, based around the old, uh, like, the race course. Yeah, yeah. And they've, they've expanded it to, a, to be a function centre and, I guess, uh, theatres or something. I'm not sure exactly how the whole thing works but i know that's been a fortune and so we're playing the opening of that and that'll be a lot of fun and uh, we're going to perth and we're doing this thing which is uh an extension of what we did at splinter in the grass this year where we played um with two of our past members uh, james baker and clyde brownley from the very first album we did and uh we're getting two previous members to those guys when we first formed we're doing a 2001 <laughs> we're reenacting our evolution basically from the first from the torn of the guru to the future of the guru which is now but um yeah we we, we start off with the original lineup luhudu gurus and we work our way through as replacing members and, and doing the music from that particular era yeah. so it's, it is very 2001 That's <laughs> in 2014 it ties in very nicely and you've been doing your own shows as well solo and playing with brad as well so that's kind of cool yeah exactly i'm doing some more shows at uh Lizotte's. uh unfortunately Lizotte's is being sold in april next year but we're playing in yeah. we're playing in february so um we're going to do the same run we did uh, earlier this year so um 
that'll be the last chance to see us probably at what was called Lazotte's. Uh, I don't think it'll keep that name. Who knows? We'll see what happens. Hopefully yeah. someone will buy it and turn it into the same sort of business because it's a fan. The one in Newcastle, you're safe. <laughs> you were waiting to jump. <laughs> he just got married there two weeks ago. All oh, right. Yes, yeah, a fantastic venue. Great choice. Venue, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, we're doing that as well. So um, come down in February and see us play the solo thing again. Well, dude, thank you so much, Dave. You're welcome. Thank you. Please.